I wonder if you've had opportunity to look at the sermon title this morning. Uh, It includes a word that is not a word that many of us like. Your obligation to God. Your obligation to God. As I understand human nature, as I understand my own heart, I know that I resist the word obligation. I think if we're honest, we would admit that we do whatever we can to resist being obligated to other people. We prefer to be autonomous. We prefer freedom. Freedom to come and go as we please. Freedom to do as we please. And as we look at the patterns of our everyday life, we may discern that we exert great effort in an attempt to free ourselves from the obligations that we're currently under. When we talk about going to work every day, Monday to Friday for most people, and we think of retirement, the goal of the Monday to Friday thing, that the obligation is to free ourselves and to enjoy retirement and some level of greater autonomy. And yet, you could say that the great sin of Adam and Eve was their pursuit of autonomy. That their great sin was their exercising a desire to set aside obligations, to set aside God's instruction, and to do as they pleased. So I'm mindful as I present this notion that we who have been redeemed by Christ have an obligation to Him. I'm mindful that we don't like obligations. I'm mindful of our temptation towards autonomy when I say that we who have been redeemed by Christ have an obligation to Him. The Apostle Paul states this in the clearest of terms when writing to the Christians in Corinth, he says to them, You are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Friends, this is one of those pivotal biblical principles that we must get right. And if we don't get this principle right, much of our application will come off the rails. We have to get this right. If we believe, if you believe you are a free agent... If you believe you are free to do as you please, you're actually repeating the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. If your conviction is, I am my own man, or I am my own woman, then you have missed one of the foundational principles within Christianity. Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. If you are a Christian, if your salvation was purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have a particular obligation to Him. Now such an obligation, I hope to demonstrate, is not a burden. 
In our everyday life, I think we would say that we have many obligations that are burdens. There are things we want to be free of. But I want to demonstrate this morning that our obligation to God must not be seen as a burden, but as a delight. And an example I would give, and I've given uh, this example in the past, would it be accurate or would it be fair for me to say, I am obligated to my wife? Am I obligated to my wife? I, I think everyone would understand, yes, Bryn, you are obligated to your wife. You took vows in front of other people and before God, yes, you are obligated to your wife. So I ask you this morning, is that obligation I have to my wife, should I see that as a burden or as a joy? Of course it ought to be a joy. You've heard me give this example before. Imagine the example where I take my wife out to a wonderful dinner out. It's just this magnificent restaurant with wonderful service and the best food. And it's a romantic evening. It's a date we haven't had in a long time. And Allie turns to me in the middle of the dinner and says, Bryn, why did you do this? Why, why this wonderful dinner? What if I answer... Well, I feel like I'm obligated. I, I, I feel like I, I said some vows in front of other people and I feel like it's my duty to do some nice things once in a while. Well, that answer does not honor her. It does not honor her because I'm serving her. I, I am, I'm doing something out of a sense of duty. The best answer I can give to Allie's question is to frame it in terms of joy. To say, Allie, it is my delight to take you out for this marvelous dinner. There is nothing on earth I would enjoy more than an evening together with you in a setting like this. That's the kind of answer that honors her. So I give this example because when it comes to understanding our obligation to God, I do not want you to equate that with drudgery. I don't want you to say, oh, i got to go to church again. I told Gavin I'd go to Bible study. I told Pastor I'd go to the prayer meeting or help with it. We don't want obligation to be rooted in drudgery. Our obligation to God is intended to be a delightful one, a joy-producing one. Which brings us back to our original question. Well, what is our obligation? What are we supposed to do? If Christ has redeemed me, and now I, I have to do some things, or I'm obligated in some way, what am I supposed to do? What is my obligation? Well, as you look through the New Testament, there are layers upon layers for answering that question. But I would put to you that one of the best summaries... Of your obligation to God can be found in two verses at the beginning of Romans 12. That if you wanted not an exhaustive summary, but perhaps the best summary of what you need to do as a Christian, I would point you to Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. They're worth hearing again. I appeal to you therefore, and the therefore is in light of chapters 1 to 11, in light of all that Christ has done for us. 
through redeeming us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I might summarize Romans 1 and 2, 12, 1 and 2 by saying this. As Christians, we have an ongoing obligation to worship God and to be transformed. We have an ongoing obligation to worship God and to be transformed. But notice the description of worship in Romans 12. The new covenant does not call for dead sacrifices, which was the call in the earlier covenant. Sacrifice a lamb or a goat and so on. But now the call is for living sacrifices. In other words, God's interest is not that his people would bring him things, but for God's people to offer themselves up in living worship. So beyond your attendance here on Sunday morning, which is good and important, beyond your offerings of praise, which are beautiful, beyond your offering of financial resources, beyond all of these things, More than all of that, God wants you. He wants your heart engaged. He wants your life engaged. God wants you to engage Him on a deeply personal level. Paul portrays worship in Romans 12 as far more than a Lord's Day exercise. Worship is portrayed here as a way of life. As a way to live all the week long. Worship is to be the overflow of our treasuring Jesus Christ. So I ask you, when did you begin worshiping this morning? When did you begin worship this morning? I hope your answer isn't, well, when I walked through those doors and I sat down in the pew. I hope that's not your answer. I hope your answer isn't, well, when I sang that opening intro, Christ be in my waking. I hope that's not your answer. If worship is a way of life, then we ought to begin worship the minute we wake up in the morning. Our first conscious thought of the day ought to be, Thank you, Lord, for giving me another day and another opportunity to love you and to delight in all that you are for me and for others. Now, I'll be the first to admit, and my family can attest to this, I'm a much better worshiper once I get a little bit of coffee in me in the morning. And and I realize that not everyone is a morning person, but it's not lost on me that I can't do what many people want to do, and that is compartmentalize my, my life. It's not like, okay, I'm home with my family in the morning, and until I have coffee, I'm grumpy, and that's me over here. 
then there's devotional Bryn. He's had some coffee. He's in his study on his own. He's got his Bible. And then there's Bryn out in the public eye. No, I can't separate it like that. My obligation to God is from the minute I wake up to the minute I fall asleep. I cannot separate the different parts of my life. My home life, my work life, my social life. We can't compartmentalize when we're being presented here with a model where worship is is our life being poured out for God. Worship, our, our life is being poured out for His purposes. That's worship. And that's the first obligation. The second obligation or the second exhortation is for us to be transformed. Be transformed. Now this sounds a little more difficult to apply, but let me help with this. By every appearance, our ability to be transformed is hinged to the first thing. So God's commandment, God's requirement is worship, be changed, be transformed. And if we start with the second thing, we're going to be in trouble. Because we need the first thing. Worshiping God is the God-ordained exercise which leads to our transformation. We give ourselves to God in worship, and that act changes us. In other words, right worship leads to genuine transformation. Right worship leads to genuine transformation. And I'm not just talking again about what we're doing here for an hour or so on Sunday. That may lead, and prayerfully, I hope it does lead to transformation. But the worship you do at home, the worship you do in your place of work, it can lead to your transformation as well. The idea here is that the genuine Christian is always changing. The genuine Christian is always progressing. The genuine Christian is always becoming a different person than they once were. Transformation is a natural or a supernatural part of our Christian existence. Now, I was thinking about this in terms of some other scriptures, which I'll get to in a moment. But I want to set up a contrast here because at my stage of life, middle age... The the contrast between what is happening on the outside and what's happening on the inside, for me, is marking. And and I don't know if my experience is typical, but I found that it seemed like the minute I became 40 years of age, my body just started breaking down in several ways that had never broken down before. I mean, once I hit 40, I started to get injured more easily. And when I got injured, I healed less quickly. Uh, As as I turned 40, I saw uh, that I was losing hair on the top of my head. And the hair that was remaining is is committed to turning gray, as you can see. And And don't let these contact lenses fool you. I can barely see past 10 yards. My vision is terrible. And we do all kinds of things to mask or to diminish this outward breaking down of our body. But my lament over this negative transformation is tempered by the more positive transformation that's going on inside of me. 
So I look in the mirror and I see all kinds of negative things, negative changes and transformation. But then in my prayer life, as I sit down with God and, and, and while I think, yes, my body's breaking down, but God is doing something in my soul. He is renewing my mind. He is transforming who I am. And then I come across 2 Corinthians 4.16. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, this is, this is wonderful to hear. Though outwardly we are wasting away. That's harsh. That's harsh. I just said I was breaking down a little bit. Paul says, no, you're wasting away. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. This is just Bryn McPhail talking. But a lot of people have said to me over the years, you know, this getting old stinks. Sometimes they use harsher words. They say, Bryn, this getting old stinks. Could it be that this outward negative transformation that every one of us will experience is meant to highlight the inward renewal? That Christ is rendering in our souls. That we can see more clearly what Christ is doing in us. When we see the wasting and away and breaking down on the outside. Look again to 2 Corinthians. We, we read this one. Chapter 3 verse 18. Uh, it tells us this is where our renewal is headed. Someone might say, well, what are you being transformed to? What's the new you going to look like? You know, we're wasting away outwardly, but what's the inward redesign? What's the goal of that? You get the answer in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ with ever-increasing glory. We're becoming more like Christ with ever-increasing glory. Dear friends, your obligation to God is to worship Him in every aspect of your life. And your obligation is to be transformed into the image of His Son. Now, I'm not a good mind reader, but... I'm going to take a guess that some of you are thinking at this very moment, Pastor, your call or Paul's call for me to be like Christ, that's just too much. It's taking things too far. I am who I am. You know, can a leopard lose his spots? This is who I am. This is the way I was made. This is the way I was raised and, and conditioned. To, to be someone else, to be more like Christ, it's a tall order. It's just too difficult for me to change and to become like Christ. And my answer to that would be, if becoming like Christ were entirely dependent upon my efforts or your efforts, you're right, we would never look like Christ. If it were all up to me, I would not resemble Jesus. And you would not resemble Jesus. But it's not all up to us. We're not alone in this transformation process. 
And, and I want to illustrate something here uh, using an illustration I've used before, and it's my experience with the game of golf. I don't know if there are golfers among us, but I want to share with you by way of illustration my experience with the game of golf. I actually began playing golf at the age of 12, and I played fairly regularly up until the age of 37, uh, that is just before I moved full-time to the Bahamas. So 25 years of golfing, and in Toronto, where I most recently ministered, there were golf courses that would actually let pastors golf for free on certain days. And so it was a delightful thing ever to just go to a really nice golf course every week and golf for free. And so I had the opportunity for many years to golf regularly. But then I tell you here today that I gave it up. I have not golfed a single game in over six years. Why is that? Why did I quit golf altogether? Well, there are a variety of reasons, but let me just give one. Discouragement. Discouragement. Because here's the thing. My golf scores at the age of 37 were identical to my golf scores at age 12. So I did the math. 25 years of my life golfing. And I never got better. I didn't improve. And I just said I had it. You know, I spend, well, sometimes spend money playing golf, always spend time playing golf, always spend energy playing golf, and I wasn't getting any better. Why do I share that with you? I share that with you because I worry that some of you imagine that the pursuit of becoming more Christ-like is a lot like the pursuit of lowering a golf score. You worry that you could put in a lot of time and a lot of energy and have nothing to show for. And many people have given up the Christian walk for discouragement, just as I have given up the game of golf. But I want you to know this morning, that the Christian life doesn't work like that. The Christian life doesn't work like that. The Christian life doesn't work like this because your progress does not depend solely upon you. Immediately after telling us that we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ with ever-increasing glory, Paul then in the next sentence says, This comes from the Lord. That's like the best sentence you could read. On the one hand, he says, you need to become like Christ. And the next sentence, he says, the Lord will make that happen. You see, when it comes to your spiritual transformation, when it comes to my spiritual transformation, there is something God does, and there is something we do. Something God does and something we do. The reason I was never confident in my golf game was because I knew it depended entirely upon my efforts. By contrast, if I have any confidence in my progress towards Christ-likeness, 
My confidence is rooted in the promise that God is working within me. That He's bringing about the transformation. And that's why Paul could say to the Philippians, I am confident of this. And you know this. He who began a good work in me, a good work in you, will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. There's something God does. And there's something we do. Or as we have framed this many times before, what is required is supplied. What God requires in His Word is supplied by His Spirit. Yes, you are obligated to God. But God will help you to meet your obligations to Him. God can animate your worship. God can facilitate your transformation. It doesn't depend only on you. But your efforts do remain relevant to the process. You can't just say, okay, God, transform me. Here I am. Do it. Do what you wish. You know, there, there is an engagement required of us. And you've done that this morning. You've shown up. The fact that you're here today, there's a hundred things you could have done instead. You could be a hundred different places, but you're here this morning. I suspect that's because there's something in you that treasures Jesus. And that's why you're here. So my challenge to you is now take the thing that motivated you here this morning. Take that into your home. And make that a place of worship. Take that to your work on Monday morning. And worship God there. Take take this to your social functions. And your dinner meetings. And worship God there. Your obligation is to be a living sacrifice. To live out moment by moment what it means to be redeemed by Jesus Christ. Live out your life of worship and that will lead to God's transformation of your character. That will lead to you becoming more like Christ. And I hope you know this already. I hope this is not something you struggle with. The Christian's obligation to God is not drudgery. I can tell you that when when I feel as though I am doing God's will, that I'm doing the thing that He designs me for, nothing brings me greater joy and delight than to, to understand or to sense that I'm doing what I was made for. I was, I'm doing what I'm redeemed for. I'm worshiping Him. And it's not drudgery. It's not duty. It's not obligation. It's delight. It's a delightful obligation in view of the mercies of God. And that's Paul's whole argument. Chapter 12 isn't chapter 1. He spends 11 chapters telling you how awesome Christ is and how glorious salvation in Christ is. And then he says, therefore, in view of those mercies, worship. Be transformed. Make your life all about God and His purposes. And that's what our final hymn is about. 
Love so amazing. Love so divine. Demands my soul. My life. My all. May we give him nothing less. Amen.